Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Florida's geological resources, including limestone, coquina, phosphate, and sand, have had a significant impact on the history of our state. Sea level and climate change is inevitable. Um, as geologists, we always look to the past to tell us something about the present and the future. With 663 miles of beaches in Florida, lifeguards have become an important part of our culture. I didn't go be a lifeguard because I love the beach. I just went to be a lifeguard because I wanted to save people. Florida in the American Revolution and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. People have enjoyed the sand of Florida's beaches for thousands of years. Prehistoric people in Florida used chert to make weapons and tools. Later indigenous people used clay to create bowls and storage containers. Coquina rock provided a practical building material for Spanish colonists. The Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine was originally constructed in 1672 using coquina, and the fort remains undefeated in battle. The Seminole Indians and runaway slaves sought refuge among the stalactites and stalagmites in the caverns of North Florida. As early as the late 1800s, automobile races were held on the firm sands of Ormond Beach and Daytona Beach. Phosphate, used as fertilizer and in some explosives, was discovered in abundant quantities in the late 19th century. By the early 20th century, phosphate mining was a major industry in Florida. Today, Florida provides about 80% of the phosphate used in the United States and about 25% of the phosphate used around the world. It took tens of millions of years for Florida's geological resources to develop. Harley Means is assistant state geologist and co-author of the book Roadside Geology of Florida. He says that millions of years ago, North America looked much different because Florida was completely submerged. During the early part of the Cenozoic period, which was about 65 million years ago, uh, Florida was, for the first 10 to 15 to 20 million years of that, completely underwater, and the limestone deposits, which are underneath our feet here, were being deposited at that time. Means explains that a prehistoric version of what is now called the Gulf Stream helped to keep Florida underwater for millions of years. Yeah, it turns out um, while Florida's uh, limestones were being deposited, there was uh, a current that swept through North Florida and off 
uh, into the Atlantic. And that current actually was active for, for millions of years, off and on. But effectively what that did was it kept all of the sediments that were being shed off of the Appalachian Mountains, things like clays and silica sands, it kept them shunted away from the carbonate deposit that was going on in Florida. So Florida's limestones from that time period, the Eocene and the early Oligocene, are very, very pure in, with respect to calcium carbonate. They're 99% pure, and uh, that makes them sought after for uh, numerous industries that would look to exploit them. Over millions of years, deposits did start to accumulate to create the Florida we know today. At different points in time, Florida would have appeared to be a series of islands as sea levels fluctuated and our coastline shifted. At some points in time, the state was twice as wide as it is now. Well, over about the last 2.6 million years, during a period we call the Pleistocene epoch, uh, sea levels have uh, fluctuated greatly. And in fact, they were between 60 and 100 feet higher than they are today at some point, uh, probably at multiple points. And it was as low as 350 to 400 feet lower than it currently is today. So the broader part of Florida, which we call the Florida platform, is actually about twice as large as the currently uh, exposed uh, above sea level portion is today. So uh, when first Floridians came to Florida, they had a lot wider area to roam. Fossil evidence demonstrates that land animals have inhabited Florida for 30 million years. The remains of mastodon, giant sloths, saber-toothed tigers, and armadillos the size of small cars have been discovered. Geological and paleontological evidence leads us to believe that Florida uh, became exposed above land probably during the um, later part of the early Oligocene into the late Oligocene. And we're talking about 30 million years ago. And uh, that evidence comes in the form of terrestrial vertebrate fossils. Some of the oldest terrestrial vertebrate fossils are from that time period. And obviously, you wouldn't get land animal fossils accumulating in a marine environment unless it was a nearshore marine environment. So we believe that's when Florida uh, first became exposed. And it's been exposed uh, off and on since that time period to a greater or lesser extent, depending on where sea level was. A popular Florida bumper sticker that reads, I climbed Mount Dora, makes fun of our state's flat terrain. Mount Dora is technically a mount at 184 feet above sea level, but climbing gear is not required to reach its summit. Despite Florida's lack of mountains or even large hills, Harley Means explains that there is a lot of geological diversity here. Florida doesn't have a lot of topography, and the uh, grand geological landscapes such as the Grand Canyon or the Front Range of the Rockies where geology is really exposed and in your face, you don't really typically think about a lot of geology in Florida because we're so flat. But that's really not the case. Florida is uh, diverse with respect to geological formations near the surface. We've got 40-plus million-year-old limestones at the surface in the Big Bend region. And we've also got uh, Holocene deposits that are currently being deposited today. So you've got a big diversity of ages of sediments that are at or near the surface in Florida and a big diversity of materials. We've got limestones, we've got dolostones, we've got clay, we've got sand, we've got coquina. So Florida really does have a diversity of geologic materials and a diversity of geology. You may have noticed that many lakes in Florida are round. That's because they started out as sinkholes. Unique karst features contribute much to the landscape of Florida. What are karst features? Well, karst simply refers to landforms 
that occur when you've got a geologic material at or near the surface. And in Florida, that geological material is either limestone or dolostone. But that geological material is able to be dissolved away over geologic time. And what that does is it leaves behind landforms like sinkholes, something that many Floridians are intimately familiar with, uh, unfortunately. And we've got uh, karst features like springs and caves that were incredibly important to Florida's first inhabitants, and they continue to be important as recreational uh, resources for us today. People first moved to Florida between 12,000 and 15,000 years ago. Means calls these prehistoric people the first geologists because they utilize the geological materials they found here. The first Floridians, when they came to our state, were looking for resources, you know, water resources being something that, you know, every human needs and Florida has always been fairly rich in water resources but we also have a diversity of geologic materials that were available to them primarily chert uh, native peoples made numerous tools out of chert because of its hardness and its ability to be fractured conchoidally they made spear points and knives and scrapers and, and all kinds of things out of them and since chert is abundant in Florida that would uh, mean to me that those resources were easily exploited and and you can see that today reflected in the diversity of uh, tool types and not only that but just the sheer numbers of them that we find in and around the state so those resources were exploited by first peoples and then as their technology advanced they learned how to manipulate clay Florida has clay deposits which they exploited obviously for the uh, making of clay pots and, and other things that they made out of clay. But so too did they put geologic materials in that clay to make the clay more useful to them, make it more malleable and, and more cohesive, if you will. Those things included silica sand and shell material and, and other geologic uh, things. So really, you know, Florida's first inhabitants had to be geologically savvy to know where these resources were so they could exploit them. Florida's geological makeup has helped to preserve many archaeological sites in our state, providing us with valuable information about our past. Many karst features uh, start out as sinkholes, a sinkhole being a hole in the ground. Many of those holes in the ground have water in them. Well, they would obviously attract game animals. Game animals might get trapped in there, and then that would be an easy target for uh, an early human to go and exploit. But not only that, once the animal was butchered and the remains sunk to the bottom, uh, that might leave the, the remains preserved for a, f a future archaeologist to come along and excavate and learn something about what was going on at that time period. Many large sinkholes had water in them. Therefore, not only did they have water in them, but they also had chert resources and clay resources. So you know, it, it stands to reason that many of these large sinkholes were actually habitation sites. And, you know, much like we do today, people discard a lot of stuff in sinkholes. So these are natural traps for the accumulation of archaeological and paleontological material. And interestingly, once they get into those features, they don't really go anywhere. They accumulate in stratified columns, and that makes it uh, particularly valuable for archaeologists to come in and later excavate. Because Florida was much larger than it is now when the first people lived here, evidence of our state's earliest inhabitants can now be excavated in the Gulf of Mexico. Certainly, uh, the Florida platform that is currently submerged uh, has great potential for archaeological resources. We already know they exist out there. Um, some archaeologists with at least Florida State University and maybe other universities have actively been looking in karst features out on the Florida shelf 
underneath the Gulf of Mexico and have already found uh, rich accumulations of archaeological material. So we know it's there. Uh, it's, it's not going anywhere. And hopefully one day we'll have enough people interested to get out there and, and really see what kind of resources are available out there. In the past, sea levels have risen to the point where Florida would have appeared to be a series of islands rather than a peninsula with only the highest portions of the state exposed. Harley Means says that Floridians today need to be aware that the same conditions are in Florida's future. Sea level and climate change is inevitable. Um, as geologists, we always look to the past to tell us something about the present and the future. And we know that sea levels have fluctuated all through geologic time. So too have climates. Uh, really the only debate is, you know, what is the extent of the impact of human activity on climate change? Um, unfortunately, you know, we as Floridians live in a state that has very little topography. Many of us like to live right on the coast, so the first people that are going to be impacted by sea level rise are going to be Floridians. So absolutely we need to be thinking about this and we need to be figuring out ways to potentially mitigate the impacts that are likely to come. Um, I can't tell you when, but I can tell you it is coming. Harley Means is Assistant State Geologist with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, Florida Geological Survey, and co-author of the book Roadside Geology of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, search our Library of Florida History catalog, find educational resources, and much more. You can also find out about our plans to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state in 2013. The theme of our 2013 Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium is 500 years of La Florida sailing in the path of discovery. 
May 23rd through 26th, we'll be aboard the Carnival cruise ship Sensation, enjoying outstanding presentations by renowned scholars such as Gerald Milanich, Kathleen Deegan, and Jose Fernandez. We'll take historic tours of Nassau, Bahamas, before returning to Port Canaveral following the same route taken by Juan Ponce de Leon 500 years before. Reservations are going fast, so visit myfloridahistory.org right now to find out more. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. Schoolbooks typically ignore the American Revolution's Florida connection. A pawn on the great diplomatic chessboard, Florida became a British possession in 1763 as a result of Spanish missteps in the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. Britain had taken possession of Havana, and Spain offered Florida in return for the valuable Cuban port city. Britain's 14th colony, Florida remained loyal to the crown during the American Revolution, while Spain aided the American cause. To this day, Spaniards affectionately call the Cathedral of Malaga, Spain, by the nickname La Manquita, loosely interpreted as a one-armed woman, because funds that would have financed the second of its two towers instead supported the revolution across the ocean. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. With 663 miles of beaches in Florida, lifeguards have become an important part of our culture. Janie Gould talks with a man who was a lifeguard from 1950 to 1989. Charlie Galnick was a fixture at Humiston Beach from 1950 until he retired in 1989. He's never forgotten his first rescue. It was a little girl who nearly drowned while her parents dozed on a beach blanket. Waves were coming in and one of the waves picked her up and pulled her into the slight gully that's always along shore right off the beach. And she fell into that, it was over her head. The tide started taking her along. Well, I was running across the beach and I could see her eyes looking right at me. I dove into the water and just like a football tackle, tackled her body, picked her up and brought her back into the beach. She would have been gone. About how old was she? She was probably about four, five years old maybe. Where were her parents? Her parents were lying asleep up on the beach. You had quite a bit of that. One day I looked south from the Breezeway restaurant and there was a small, looked like a beach ball, being pulled out into the ocean in a riptide. So I ran down there and dove into the water and swam out to it and it was a small child, maybe three years old, probably about 
100 feet offshore. I brought her in and called the police, and they found out where the parents were still in a motel room along the beach and didn't even know the child had gotten up, walked out the door, walked down to the beach, and fell into the water. They must have been so grateful to you. I don't even remember. I didn't stick around for much of the grateful stuff. I just did what was necessary, and then I kind of liked to walk away. Were they mostly tourists, people who uh, weren't used to the beach? Yes. And it would have been in the tourist season, right, in the winter months? No, mainly? every month. It never stopped. It could be during the height of a rainstorm, and you can't hardly see, and the people would be out there swimming. When they came to the beach, it was unbelievable. What do you mean? Like a parent would sit a child down along the edge of the big waves when they receded and walk away from them, and here's coming a big wave in. That was awful. And they didn't know anything about anything. And they all belonged in water that was about one foot deep. I used to have a saying every morning before I'd go to work, I'd hit my toe with a hammer so that I'd be ready for the day at the beach. The boiler was a shipwreck that was about a quarter mile offshore that you could see from the shore. People used to swim out to it a lot. You went out there a, a bunch of times, I'm sure, to bring some of those people back. I went out there all the time. They were not allowed to swim out to that ship. Who wasn't? Swimmers. No, skin divers with equipment and surfers. We used to go out there and surf all the time. If you're a free swimmer, it becomes a long, long way. I saw this one guy swimming out there one day. He got up on the boiler and I was following him out. He was real sick when I got out there. So I put him on the raft and brought him back into shore. He got out there and his appendix ruptured while he was out at the boiler. Other times, it was just nothing, just a matter of saying, you're not allowed to swim out here back to shore. You knew the ocean so well. You had a radio show called Charlie's Atlantic Annex. But now you're out on a farm. You're about, oh, eight miles west of the beach. You're taking care of horses. Do you miss the beach? Do I miss the beach? Not at all. I was there every day. Seven days a week? Yes. I'd had too much of it. And you haven't seen the beach since 1989? You haven't been on the beach? No, I wouldn't go near it. I didn't go be a lifeguard because I loved the beach. I just went to be a lifeguard because I wanted to save people. Charlie Galnick is a native of Vero Beach. Feeney Gould from WQCS Fort Pierce prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. It took 52 years from the time that Juan Ponce de Leon claimed Florida for Spain in 1513 and the first permanent settlement was established by Don Pedro Menendez in 1565. As Bill Dudley reports, other Spanish conquistadors visited Florida during this period. Well, they were arrogant and they were sure of themselves and they were very confident in their mission, in their belief that God had somehow anointed Spain and made Spain powerful in this moment for them to spread their culture and their way of life. Author Paul Schneider, his 2006 book Brutal Journey is a new retelling of the story of Spanish conquistador Panfio de Narvaez and his failed attempt to conquer North America. 
The Narvaez story begins only 14 years after Ponce de Leon claimed La Florida for Spain, and seven years after Cortes discovered the golden riches of Mexico. And in fact, Panfilo Narvaez felt that Cortes had stolen Mexico from him. So he's obsessed with regaining his honor and matching Cortes's achievement. And he believes that there will be another big gold-laden urban civilization somewhere in North America like there was in Mexico. Following a series of misadventures, Narvaez, with 400 men and five ships, landed just north of Tampa Bay on Good Friday, April 15, 1528. Nothing more was heard of the party for eight years. Then in 1536, four ragged survivors walked into a Spanish outpost near the west coast of Mexico. Among them, the expedition's treasurer, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, whose memoir tells a horrific tale not only of ambition and arrogance, but sickness, starvation, cruelty, even cannibalism. What it also contains is priceless information about the cultures and customs of the native peoples from Florida westward. In Florida, they met cultures where kings came carried out on litters preceded by flute players. In the west, they run into bands of hunter-gatherers. They run into corn-growing cultures. And then when they finally get all the way out west, you know, they're, they're in the Pueblo country. They have people in houses. So the diversity of people that they met along the way, they don't just meet noble savages, they meet everybody. Schneider's book pulls together accounts from other explorers of the period, as well as archaeological evidence, to put the Cabeza de Vaca narrative in context. What was interesting to me was to find everything I could about every possible Native American group. Because it took them eight years, so they, they really lived with the Native Americans. The explorers first encountered the Tocobaga, who seemed to have heard of the Europeans' reputation for enslaving Native peoples. The first day, it's all very friendly. But then during the night, the Indians in this village, they disappear, abandon their village. What many of the, what are called the Tocobaga or the Safety Harbor culture Indians who lived around Tampa Bay did. As the expedition, now running low on food, walked northward, they encountered members of the Timuqua tribe. These highly evolved people were nothing like the typical stereotypes of Native Americans, according to FSU historian Andrew Frank. They were settled. They lived in what we would now call urban communities. Each village was connected to one another, and they paid tribute. We're talking about forms of taxation, trade relationships that went as far west as about Oklahoma, or what is now Oklahoma. They could amass armies, and they rivaled in complexity in the way their social structure was to any of the people in North or South America, and rivals the way in which Europeans lived at the time. Paul Schneider believes much of the Spaniards' arrogance was challenged a few weeks later as they encountered the warlike Appalachian tribe some 40 miles south of present-day Tallahassee. The Spanish think they have the superior weapons, they think they have the superior god, they think they have the superior culture, but the Appalachian have the superior bows and arrows, it turned out, and kind of drive them down into the sea. In every society, we understand ourselves as being normal and other people not being normal. And most societies judged normal as being superior. They had conquered Peru, they had conquered Mexico, and now here this group of people comes to Florida and they experience quite the opposite. So that must have been quite a series of moments of truth, if you will. Very humiliating. By the fall of that year, malnutrition, fever, and Indian attacks had reduced their numbers to less than a hundred. They fashioned crude boats and began working their way west along the Gulf, spending the winter on the Texas coast. By spring, only a handful remained. The once-proud conquistadors' dreams of gold and glory had turned into a struggle to stay alive. The, the expedition was the quintessential failure of early America. 
They were well-funded and well-armed. They had everything going for them on the terms of how they understood the world in 1528. And by the time the expedition ended, they had lost, they lost everything, most of their men and all their supplies. But those survivors, it would be hard to imagine them still having their pride, if you will. The book Brutal Journey is published by Henry Holt and Company. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Don't miss your opportunity to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state as the Florida Historical Society holds their 2013 annual meeting and symposium aboard the Carnival Cruise Ship Sensation May 23rd through 26th. For more information, visit myfloridahistory.org or find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.